reading today from chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we, bought no- for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're in desperate need of hearing your voice. We're in desperate need of your guidance, your instruction, your teaching in our lives. Because apart from you, we are lost. Apart from you, we don't know how to live rightly. We certainly, apart from you, could never experience eternal life, never experience salvation, never experience true life, because you yourself are true life, and we need you to experience life. So God, we're so thankful that you have given us the gift of Holy Scripture. We're so thankful that we have your words right before us this morning. And God, we are inviting, we are pleading with you that you would speak to us through your word, that you would instruct us, that you would give us understanding. And that, Lord, not only would we have understanding, but that we would have a willingness, a desire, and an ability to actually apply what we learn today so that we can become the women and the men that you've called us to be, so that we can become Christ-like and experience life in abundance. So, Lord, we commit this time of teaching, this time of studying to you, and we pray that you would use it for our benefit And of course, to glorify yourself. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A hundred years ago, the richest man on planet Earth was a man named John D. Rockefeller. And just to put this into perspective for you, today the richest person on Earth is Jeff Bezos. He's worth about $134 billion dollars. In today's money, John D. Rockefeller would have been worth three times that amount of money. He was tremendously, tremendously, I mean, unimaginably wealthy. When once asked, how much money is enough? This extremely wealthy man replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And that impulse toward greed I think, is characteristic of the materialism that permeates every aspect of American culture. You know, for many cultures throughout the history of the world, excessive wealth has been looked at as problematic or in some situations even as evidence of evil. 
Because many people uh, throughout the history of the world have looked at those who were extremely wealthy and they have concluded that those people achieved great wealth through violence or exploitation. However, our culture is different. Our culture doesn't see tremendous wealth as evil or problematic. In fact, we've reversed that and we see riches and we see wealth as the ultimate good in our culture. What I mean by that is if someone were to ask, why did you do that? And the person were to respond and say, because I could make more money. That would be the end of the discussion. Or if somebody were to ask, why did you choose that career path? And the response were to be, well, I could make more money. Again, that would likely be the end of the discussion. More money is good enough reason to do anything short of outright high-level crime in our country. In our passage this morning, you and I are confronted with the startling, and to be honest with you, the downright culturally offensive reality that greed and materialism are objectively evil. And as such, they are at odds with the life that God intends for us to live. Unfortunately, for the church at Ephesus that the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy about, the pastors of that The leaders of that church themselves needed this reminder. See, these pastors, these false teachers that were in the church at Ephesus are the very reason why the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in the first place. Back in chapter 1, right there in the third verse, Paul tells Timothy why he's writing. Here's what 1 Timothy 1.3 says. As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he was writing to Timothy about the false teachers. And now as he gets to the end of his letter, here in chapter 6, he comes back around to dealing with these false teachers again. In verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So Paul here is addressing once again the false teachers as he gets to the end of this letter. And what we find in verse five and what we're gonna come to momentarily is that they saw ministry as a way to make a fortune. They saw ministry as an opportunity to exploit people and to enrich themselves. Now, of course, this does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ as we read in verse 3. This idea is not in line with the truth of the gospel and the truth of what Jesus taught. That word sound there in verse 3 means healthy. It means healthy. When we feast on the teaching of Jesus that is recorded for us in Holy Scripture, did you know that we become spiritually healthy people? Did you know that when you feast on the words of Christ, when you feast on God's word, you become a person who has a healthy soul? You're a spiritually healthy person. But on the other hand, if you're swept away by any form of false teaching and you start digesting that as your spiritual diet, you will begin to experience spiritual rot. And that's what happened with these false teachers. 
I, noted, I want to note that the faithful teaching in verse 3 accords with godliness. All faith, faithful gospel preaching will make you godly. Again, all faithful gospel preaching will make you godly. If what you are being taught in a church or if the way that you are interpreting Scripture as you study the Bible for yourself is not making you more godly, something has gone terribly wrong. The sound or healthy words of our Lord Jesus are words that accord with godliness, that make you and I more and more godly. Well, the brand of Christianity that these false teachers in Ephesus were peddling was producing the exact opposite of godliness. I mean, look at, look at what Paul writes about the way these false teachers themselves were living, the characteristics of these false teachers. Starting in verse 4, he says that they were puffed up with conceit. They were arrogant. They were proud. They were sure of themselves. Puffed up with conceit. It has been well said that there is no ground for boasting at the foot of the cross. There's no ground for boasting at the foot of the cross. What that means is that when you and I truly grasp the message of the gospel, rather than producing pride in our lives, it actually produces humility. Right? Because the message of the gospel is that you don't have it all together. The message of the gospel is that you are in need of a savior, that you're broken, that you're flawed, that you can't get it together on your own. But the message of the gospel goes further to say, because of that, or despite that, God still loves you. And he loves you enough that he sent you a savior, the man Christ Jesus, who is good enough who perfectly obeyed the law, who laid down his life on the cross as a substitute for your sins and took it up again three days later so that your sin could be dealt with and so that death would no longer have a hold over you if you turn to him in faith and follow him. See, the gospel is a message that really knocks the legs out of our pride. Brings us to a place of humility. But these false teachers weren't that way. They were arrogant, and not only were they arrogant, but they were also without understanding, we read there. Did you know that arrogance plus ignorance is a really dangerous combination? Arrogance plus ignorance is a really dangerous combination. A person who is all too sure of themselves and yet completely wrong is a really terrible person to be around, especially if they're a person in power. Netflix has recently put out a documentary about the fire festival. And the documentary is called The Greatest Party That Never Happened. And it details a festival that was scheduled to take place in 2017 on a remote island in the Bahamas. And it describes this guy named Billy McFarlane. Billy McFarlane was a young entrepreneur, or I should say is, a young entrepreneur in his late 20s. And this guy was charismatic. This guy was able to network and generate all the right connections and get millions and millions and millions of dollars together to allegedly throw the greatest music festival since Woodstock. And it was, again, going to be on a private island in the Bahamas. The problem with Billy McFarlane was he was all too sure of himself and he had no idea what he was doing. 
And he had all these really gifted people around him working for him. And throughout the process of getting closer and closer to this festival, which thousands of people from all over the world had bought tickets to and spent thousands of dollars on, as they got closer to the festival, all these smart people around him were saying, uh, this isn't going to work. Uh, how are we going to get toilets here? How are we going to feed these people? Where are we going to put these people? And instead of listening to them, he would fire them and get somebody else who would be a yes man. And ultimately the whole thing fell apart. He's spending six years in prison and he is, he's going to owe $26 million in restitution. Arrogance plus ignorance is a deadly combination. These false teachers, Paul writes, understand nothing. They're without understanding. Now, let's be careful to, to, to unpack what he means there. When he says that they're without understanding, he doesn't mean that they're dumb. He doesn't mean that they're unintelligent. In fact, when it comes to false teachers, oftentimes they're the exact opposite, like this guy, Billy McFarland. It's not that this guy was dumb. In some senses, he's really brilliant. And oftentimes false teachers are that way. They're very smart. They're very charismatic. They're often gifted. They're very persuasive. But what Paul means here and what Paul is getting at is that for somebody to depart from the truthfulness of the gospel what that means is that person is spiritually in the dark. They spiritually understand nothing. They lack all spiritual understanding because here's the fact of the matter. To reject the truth of the gospel is to reject all foundational truth about existence. I mean, the gospel is a message that begins with God as the creator of the universe and then continues on with human beings being created in the image of God, but then sinning and alienating themselves from God. And then continues on with a God who rescues those sinful people that are created in his image through the person and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the gospel message goes on to tell us that for all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus alone, they will be saved at the Return of Christ when Jesus remakes the heavens and the earth. Do you see how the gospel message is a totalizing message that explains to us really the essential foundational truths about all of existence? For somebody to get away from that message, to reject that message, that person is without understanding is what the apostle Paul is telling us. So these are proud people. They're ignorant people, these false teachers. And notice also they had an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Did you know that pride leads to argument and debate? I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're the proud person, then, then you're always right. And you have to prove to your spouse or to your coworkers or to your children that you are right. And so you're argumentative generally. You debate about everything. You can never just let it go. And that's how these false teachers were. They were constantly quarreling about words. They were enjoying the controversy. Now, without question in ministry, there is a place for dissecting the meaning of words. There is a place even for argument or debate about theology and about truth. But a healthy pastor doesn't live for that stuff. A healthy pastor isn't craving and getting some, some uh, kicks out of arguing with people and debating people and having controversy around them. And certainly the fruit of a healthy pastor's ministry is not envy, 
dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction, which Paul describes here. No, no, no. Healthy pastors teaching healthy doctrine produce godly church members and a unified church family. That's what happens. If you have healthy pastors teaching healthy doctrine, it creates a healthy church culture. But these false teachers just couldn't see that. Paul says they were depraved in mind. And church, listen to me. This is just how far their depravity had been taken. Look at verse five. They actually believed that godliness is a means of gain. Translation, that ministry is a vehicle to get rich. So warped was their thinking that they thought that the point of what we're doing here, as we gather together as the people of God, the point of it is to enrich themselves. And so Paul here is going to have to deal with this idea. And he's going to undermine this teaching. And he's going to speak at length here about the perils of seeking riches, the perils of materialism. Again, these false teachers saw ministry as a vehicle to get rich. And of course, when you think about it, the only way to pull that off in a church is to convince all of the members of the church that the whole point of the entire religion, we have to recast the whole religion in terms of God wants you all to be rich as well. And so it goes, if you follow Jesus faithfully and you're really, really godly and you're doing things right here, you're gonna be rich just like me. This is the perfect example. The pastor gets to be the example. And so th that's the only way you're ever gonna pull that off is to encourage everybody to pursue riches and wealth because that's evidence of God's blessing. So the teaching goes something like this. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be prosperous in everything your hand touches. And again, look at me. That's how the teaching would go in the church. Family, I so wish that I could say this morning that this was a heresy that came and went in the first century. That this was put to rest 1900 years ago. That pastors and preachers and ministries are not being built on this false gospel today. But that's just not the case. This type of false gospel has a name in our culture. It's called the prosperity gospel. And it is alive and well, and it is kicking and thriving, particularly in American evangelicalism. There are many prominent pastors, many prominent preachers, many prominent ministries that good-intentioned people are sending thousands of dollars to who are teaching this nonsense. That God wants you right now in your life to have material prosperity, that He wants you to have perfect health, that He wants everything to go right according to your will and your plan and the way that you see it. Paul is reminding us in this profound text this morning, once and for all, that the prosperity gospel is not the gospel. It's not. That's not what God is doing right now. That's not what God is after in the church. Here's the true gospel. Godliness is not, me, is not a means for gain. Godliness is the gain. Again, godliness is not a means for gain. Godliness is the gain. That is the true riches, is becoming, 
conformed into the image of Christ, being a godly person, which only comes through having a relationship with God Himself. And this is the first thing that Paul wants to say and that we all must say in response to this false teaching. Godliness is gain. Look at verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Can we just say that together this morning? Can we say godliness is gain? That was a great pregnant pause. That just really enhances the effect a lot. Let's, let's just say that one more time. Godliness is gain. The reason I'm having you say that is because this cannot be stressed enough in our church culture right now. That godliness is the thing that produces great gain for you. You need to know, we've talked about this at length in this study through 1 Timothy. Godliness is the point of the Christian life. It is the end goal of your spiritual journey. It is what God is aiming at doing in your life before you enter into heaven. What God is doing right now is He is fashioning those of us who are in Christ into the image of Christ. If you by faith are in Christ, God is conforming you into the image of Christ. He is transforming you into a godly person, not a godless person. What Jesus has done for us is Jesus has freed us from living for sin to now live for Him, which means living like Him. Back in chapter 4, we studied a really wonderful text a few weeks back. In verses 7 and 8, Paul wrote there, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, he says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So church, what are we supposed to be training ourselves for? Godliness. What is the thing that we are striving after as we strive after God? It's going to be godliness. As we are striving after Him, we're going to become like Him. We'll be godly people. Prosperity teachers will say, God wants you to be rich. That's false. God wants you to be godly. And whether you're rich, whether you're poor, or whether you're middle class is honestly Besides the point. Now, why does he write godliness with contentment is great, great gain? Why does he add the word contentment here? The reason is because the Apostle Paul right now is having to speak out against greed. And contentment is the opposite of greed. Greed says, I need more. I need more. It's an insatiable appetite for more, no matter how much you have, you need more. It's the John D. Rockefeller syndrome. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. That's what greed is. Greed says, I need more. What does contentment say? Contentment says, I have enough. It's the opposite. I have enough. Now let's be careful here. And let's say this, contentment doesn't necessarily mean having little to nothing doesn't necessarily mean that. 
Sometimes we can wrongly equate contentment with poverty. Those are not necessarily the same things. Contentment doesn't necessarily mean having little to nothing. Here's what it means. Contentment means being satisfied with what God has provided you. Contentment is being satisfied with what God has provided you. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about how part of what it means to be godly is working hard. We talked about that the godly person, the Christian employee, in some senses should be the hardest worker at your company with the best attitude who's seeking to bless your company as much as you possibly can through what you contribute to the company. And so if that's true, it might turn out that by being godly in the workplace, you make good money. That could happen. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you are a person who as you seek to live a godly life, you find that you begin to flourish materially and you have great possessions, then there are going to be other things that are accompany, accompanying excuse me, your godliness. Things like generosity. Things like good works. Things like a balanced home life, a balanced church life. Those will be things that you'll see in a godly person's life, even if they have material resources. It also might be that as you pursue godliness in the workplace, you don't make great money. And that's where many Christians are. They work hard. They seek to Love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They seek to do the best that they can at work. They love their families well. They serve their church family well. And they just don't have lots of resources. What's so wonderful is that in Christ, we can still learn how to be content, even without much. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting this morning that if a person has nothing, if a person is in abject poverty, that there's something wrong with them wanting more, wanting to have a decent standard of living, wanting to be able to take care of themselves. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. We don't look at somebody who's struggling, somebody who's unable to pay their own necessary bills and go, well, just be content. At least you're getting one meal a day. Just be content. There's nothing noble in saying that. In fact, I would say that if a person has nothing and is in serious, serious financial duress, there's a very natural discontent about that. There's nothing wrong with that. And a person in that situation rightfully prays the way Jesus taught them to pray. Father, give us this day our daily bread, wanting, crying out for their needs. Notice that contentment in verse eight presumes a certain level of provision. Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. Again, the idea is, you know, if, if our needs are being met, we're going to be content there. There's, a, there's an assumption there that there's a baseline level of provision that is happening. And so again, for a person who cannot survive, there's a very natural discontent, but it leads you back to God. And that's the beautiful thing about that. But the key is that once our needs are met, once we can function healthily in society, you and I can learn to be content. We can learn to be satisfied with what God has provided, whether that's relatively little 
or whether that's relatively much, we can learn to be satisfied in what God has provided. And what a great place that is to be, just to be content, just to be satisfied in the simple things. I wonder if you've ever felt a deep sense of satisfaction by just sitting around a table with people that you love, that matter to you, and enjoying a good meal together. Nothing incredibly ostentatious about that, but something deeply satisfying. It's a wonderful thing to learn to be content, to look at your lot in life, look at the things that God has given you, and truly at the core of your being, be happy about it, be thankful for it, feel blessed by it. I wonder this morning, church, if you're content with what God has given you. Or I wonder if inside your heart, if you're honest with yourself, which is always a good thing to do in church, by the way. I wonder if inside your heart, there's a deep discontent because what God has given you doesn't feel like enough. There's a deep discontent because what you see that person have or these people over here. The point is this, whether I have little or whether I have much, I can always be godly. My money doesn't dictate that. I can always choose to be godly. And that's where the true riches are found. The true riches that really matter are in Christ. Didn't the apostle Paul say as much over in Philippians 4? 11 through 13, you might want to make note of this text. The apostle Paul writes, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Notice that contentment is something you can learn. So if you're struggling, there's good news. You can learn this. Verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. So that's when he's got a lot and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the key. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The key then to contentment is not about possessions. It's about perspective. It's not about possessions, it's about perspective. Contentment, true contentment, comes from having Christ. And if you have Christ, you, in a sense, have all you will ever need. So what do we do? Well, we pursue Him, not riches. Godliness is gain. Can we say that one last time? Okay, the second thing to say in response to this false teaching is greed is loss. I was so not expecting that there. I was just making the point and then trying to gather my thoughts. But good job. You have been well-trained this morning. Greed is loss. Why is that the case? Well, a couple of reasons. Look at verse 7. Here's what he writes in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. Translation, material riches don't last forever. They don't. This is an allusion to Job 121. You remember Job, he had lost everything. He was a wealthy, prosperous man, had a large, beautiful family, lost everything. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is saying, look, I, I come with nothing and I leave with nothing. Everything that I accumulate 
on this rock that we call planet Earth stays here when I die. It's been well said, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It all stays back. There was a bumper sticker years ago that used to read, he who dies with the most toys wins. A lot of us think that way. And there was another bumper sticker that was released later and it said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Amen. It's a sobering truth. Going back to John D. Rockefeller again, after John D. Rockefeller died, his personal aide was asked how much money he left behind. And the aide wisely responded, he left it all behind. It doesn't go with you. So materialism is loss. Materialism and greed is a dead-end trap. You are going to work like a slave to accumulate things that you think will make you happy. And you know what? They might give you a little bit of temporary gratification, but the new car smell wears off. And so you work so hard and so diligently to accumulate the things that you think are going to deliver, and then you lose it all. You leave it all behind. King Solomon, the wealthiest man of his day and age, had an existential crisis over the fact that he said, everything I have built, all the great stuff that I have done, this is my paraphrase, so don't hold me to this. He said, some other loser is going to get all this and he's not going to care about it as much as I do. And it's true. So greed is loss because material riches don't last forever, but also greed is loss in verses nine and 10 because material riches open us up to temptation. Let's read the text again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those who desire to be rich, and what he's getting at there is those who make it their life's aim to be rich, to have extreme wealth, to be able to buy whatever they want. They open themselves up to temptations of various kinds. And for the vast majority of people who travel this road, those temptations prove to be far too great. That's why Jesus taught us it is so difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because the temptations are so strong, so powerful, so profound that many a rich people have fallen victim to them. What kinds of temptations? Well, for brevity's sake, let me just break this into two categories. There are temptations in getting rich. So as you're on the journey to being rich, and then there are temptations when you are rich, once you've already achieved the wealth. One of the primary temptations that we fall under in our pursuit of riches is the temptation to become a workaholic. Now, work in American culture has become an idol. It's become a form of religion where people find their value and their worth in their work. And they devote themselves to their work endlessly. And there's a temptation. If money is the end game for you, if that's the highest value for you, then you will sacrifice the best years of your life and the best hours of your day and your week to work. And you will become, if you're not careful, a workaholic. And when you do that, here's the problem. 
The moment you've become a workaholic, you compromise your godliness. Because to be a workaholic requires that you sacrifice your wife, your children, or your husband and your children on the altar of work and success. It requires that you sacrifice, oftentimes, the best energy of your days and your weeks and your months, energy that could have been devoted to the Lord. You sacrifice those things on the altar of success. What it requires for you to be a workaholic is that you sacrifice your church family and the obligations and commitments that the scriptures tell us we have here to one another. You lay all that on the altar of success. And instead of fulfilling all these things that God is calling you to fulfill, it's off to work you go. Rather than your work being a way to worship, like we talked about last week, your work becomes what you worship. And it's an idol and it draws us away. Of course, another temptation on the way to getting success is the temptation to use people. Stop valuing them as image bearers of God and look at them as steps on a ladder to success that you'll trample over gladly to get the promotion, to get the sell, to get whatever you need. But there are also enormous temptations in being rich. If anyone in this room is currently rich or you've had great resources at your disposal at some point in your life, you know that having great wealth opens you up to temptations that didn't exist when you didn't have money. It's like Solomon again in Ecclesiastes. He was able, and he says this, that he was able to pursue every desire in his heart. He could buy any pleasure he wanted. He could manipulate any circumstance the way that he wanted to satisfy the sinful cravings of his heart. When you have great money, many people come knocking, many opportunities present themselves, and there is no temptation that is off limits. And so there's a lot of temptations in having tons of money. But I want you to notice that at the core here, and I tried to say this earlier, but it's not really about how much money you have. At the core here, the issue is skewed desires. Paul is very clear. He says those who, you can underline it if you want, desire, and the Greek word there indicates a strong yearning. Those who desire to be rich, again, meaning that that is their aim. That's their focus rather than godliness. And then in verse 10, Paul is very careful again to say it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say that money itself is a root of evil of all evil. It's an inordinate desire for money that is the problem. The shorthand for that is greed is the problem. That's the label. That's the sin. Greed is a sin. And as we're talking about this morning, greed is great loss. Many would-be Christians, both Christian leaders and professing Christians alike, have wandered away from the faith for a love of money, for a pursuit of material riches. And they gladly sacrificed faith and family and every other good gift that God gives to them in the pursuit of just a little bit more. What happens to people like that? Well, Paul puts it this way. They plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. He says they wander away from the faith, verse 10, and they pierce themselves with many pangs. It's a very vivid, graphic 
description of the destruction that they experience. The word pangs there, it means distress, it means pain, it means woe, it means intense mental strain or anxiety. You'll remember in Acts chapter 5, a couple in the church, Ananias and Sapphira, they were witnessing miracles like all of us dream of seeing in the church. They were sitting under apostolic preaching from people like Peter and James. They were witnessing miracles taking place every time they gathered. And yet, for just a little bit more money, they lied to the Holy Spirit about how much they had sold a property for. Instead of just being honest, we sold it for X amount of money. We kind of want to keep a little bit of money. Here's what we're, we've decided in our heart to give to the church. No, it wasn't about that. They wanted all the money, so they lied to the church. They wanted to look more generous than they were, and they lied to the church, and they were struck down dead which is why we're going to take another offering at the end of service. So if anybody needs to correct some things this morning, trust me, it's because we love you. No, I'm just kidding. We aren't going to do that. But the point is, here's this couple that sees, again, just this spiritual things in the church that you would think would make them say, that, that's all that matters in the world, but it didn't. Greed had a hold of their hearts and it cost them everything. And although 2,000 years has come and gone, this passage is as relevant, if not more relevant, today than it was the day that the ink was still wet on the papyrus. Because again, you and I are living in the midst of the most materialistic, greedy culture in the history of human civilizations. And so, as Christians who are living in this sort of environment, spiritually toxic environment, you and I have to be extra circumspect. You and I have to be extra guarded against greed and this never-ending desire for more and more and more. And you and I need to constantly be very, very honest and asking ourselves, what about me? Am I driven by greed? Is there a constant, insatiable drive in my heart for the next thing, for more? Christmas comes and I get the gifts and the next morning I'm on Amazon seeing what the next thing is that I can get? I mean, is that who we are? Are we a people that buy and sell and accumulate seven days a week who can never rest from this desire for more? Or am I driven by godliness? Do I wake up every morning and go, God, I just want more of you. Look at our lives and go, man, it's enough. I mean, sure, would it be great to have a new car or have this other thing? Great, yeah, I'd love that. But man, I'm really blessed. Man, I feel really good about what you've given me, Lord. You've given me the gift of salvation. You've given me whatever other blanks you can fill in in your own life. Thank you, Lord. I'm satisfied with the good things that I've received from a good father. The wise person realizes that chasing riches in this life is a lose-lose. Because if that's your aim, you open yourself up to endless temptations that can lead to your own destruction. And like we talked about, even if you get them, even if you achieve the riches, you can't take them with you. But the person who pursues godliness is in an eternal win-win. In this life, you enjoy the things that really matter being at harmony with your God and being at harmony with fellow people. And in the life to come, you experience true riches 
for all of eternity. And family, by God's grace, let us make it our aim to be a people who pursue Christ, the one in whom the true riches are found. Jesus takes this idea, poverty and riches, and he turns it all on its head. Here's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. True riches are bound up in Jesus Christ. Things like forgiveness of your sins. Things like a reconciled relationship with the God who created you, who knows everything you're going through, and who has good plans for your future if you'll just entrust yourself to him. In Jesus, the one who gives you eternal life, who gives you victory over the grave, who satisfies you with good things all the days of your life. That's where true riches are found. And so again, by God's grace, let us be a people who are daily, even hourly, pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, passages like this are challenging for probably almost all of us in this room this morning because obviously we can look around at the world for sure, but we can even look around in our own community and most of us can agree we're probably better off than many other people. And yet, many of us do live with a constant an ongoing drive and desire to achieve more, to accumulate more. And so it's convicting to study a text like this because it's corrective for us. But just like every time we go to a doctor and they diagnose us with something and they prescribe a remedy for it, just like going and receiving that remedy and taking it is actually for our good. We're gonna trust this morning that the correction that you offer to us in your word is for our good. Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would give us the faith this morning to be a people who satisfy ourselves with true riches. That we'd be a people who are constantly delighting ourselves in the Lord. That we'd be a people who are constantly allowing ourselves to be satisfied with righteousness, satisfied with your presence, and satisfied with the good things that you give us in the here and now. So Lord, help us to do that. How countercultural, how radically alien it might look to our friends and our family members and our coworkers here in Santa Barbara and Goleta. If instead of joining along with them in the never-ending rat race to get more, they saw in us a community of people who could truly say, I've got enough. If they saw a, a profound contentedness, contentment, in each and every one of us. What a witness that might be. So Lord, we pray that you would do this, that you would work these things into our heart this morning. Of course, for our own good, so that we don't chase after riches and fall prey to these temptations, but also for the good of people around us as they see our witness, they see that our lifestyle and our contentment testifies to the fact that our God is all we truly need and that he and he alone satisfies the human heart. So Lord, do these things for our good and for your eternal glory and honor, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.